Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. If I ask you, where do babies come from? Would you say pronatalism? If you didn't, you'll want to keep on listening. This is a really interesting conversation with author Laura Carroll. Laura has written some great books about the decision to bear children, why it should be a decision, and how that decision affects individuals, society, and the environment. She's talked about the child-free option on a lot of TV and radio shows, and today we're talking about the cultural stories that pressure everyone to have kids, even people who aren't sure they want them or don't know if they could raise them well. We'll talk about why it's not selfish to pass on having kids. We'll outline some powerful pronatalist myths that we may not even be aware of. We'll talk about the strong connection between having kids and climate change. And we'll talk about Laura's research on where pronatalist myths come from and what could replace them. It seems that a whole hell of a lot of babies come from a collection of assumptions that are very rarely challenged. And you've been writing about this for a long time, and you have a number of books. Um, We're going to be talking today about The Baby Matrix, Why Freeing Our Minds from Outmoded Thinking About Parenthood and Reproduction Will Create a Better World. Families of Two. Now, I haven't read that one. I assume that's about making your life without kids. Is that true? Yes, it uh, was interviews with um, couples who, married couples, um, who chose not to have kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there is Manswarm, which would make a great dating app name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. The second edition that you did with Dave Foreman, who is one of our elder environmentalists. And that man, that'll really kick your butt uh, in terms of what population is doing, what overpopulation is doing worldwide. What got you interested in, in this topic? With population, I was... Um researching the baby matrix and um, particularly what I, I call in the baby matrix, the offspring assumption. It's, it's the, the idea that as long as we're biologically capable to have children, that we can have them and have as many as we want. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was, you know, and the problems associated with that. And it led me to read the first edition Man Swarm by Dave Foreman. And it just like knocked my socks off. It really opened my eyes to seeing overpopulation as a crisis and um, seeing how our views that somehow humans are superior to all other beings and things on the planet um, just is is creating real trouble. So that's how um, I got interested in, in reading about it and then writing about it and including it in the baby matrix as, as one assumption um, related to one assumption that has to do with 
decisions and beliefs we have about parenthood and what we're supposed to be doing and, and the, the, the negative impacts of that. Mm-hmm. And in the baby matrix, you outline seven assumptions about having children. Now, you don't have children, do you? I don't. I don't either. And I've never had a second of regret. <laughs> never. <laughs> no, I know. I understand. I do. <laughs> yeah. And I know so many people. I mean, for some people, they they really want to have kids. And, and I'd like to say up front that we're not saying that there's something wrong with you if you want to have children um, or a child. Did you ever read Bill McKibben's book, Maybe One? I did. Yes. I liked and, it. It was very good. I, yeah. yeah. Debunking some of the myths about only children and, and why smaller families are a good idea. It was, I thought at the time really timely and um, still very relevant today. So there are these, these assumptions that don't work and you're looking at kind of an overall cultural pronatalism, you call it. So do you want to explain what you consider pronatalism to be? Uh, sure. So uh, after after I uh, published Families of Two, which were you know interviews with happily married couples who didn't have kids, and I really wanted to portray that this choice is a normal one, and the people who make it are actually very normal. There's nothing wrong with them, and they lead normal lives, etc. <laughs> it was very well received. But after that, you know, I got, found myself really continuing to ask, you know, why does society find this choice so hard to accept? Mm-hmm. And that led me down quite the rabbit hole to a set of beliefs called pronatalism. And it doesn't just have to do with assumptions or, or uh, thinking about not having kids by choice. It is a set of beliefs that um, go way beyond that to how we think about, you know, what I call the destiny assumption that somehow it's innate in us to um, to want to have children, that the desire is innate. And when you really look hard at that, there's no evidence to support that. So mm-hmm. it, the, there's the, the pronatalism just means what the, the word sort of sounds like. It's pro, very pro-natal. It, it exalts the role of parenthood, encourages reproduction. And the book really goes into how, where did this come from? Why do we have these beliefs? And why are they such a powerful influence? Even though some of the, quote, beliefs are really myths, have never been true, and some mm-hmm. might have been true, you know, way back when, but they're really no longer relevant mindsets to hold in today's society. So that's where the seven came from. I looked at so many different mindsets that we, we are somehow, you know, so entrenched, we believe that they're true, but I unravel them and say, well, gee, look harder, and, and they're not. Um, and how can we, how and why should we be looking differently uh, on on some of these assumptions to, you know, make the world a better place today. Well, and you do a great job of that. And I'd like to quote something here before we get into those seven assumptions. Um, You know, there are myths and there are myths and myths, of course, that are considered to be falsehoods. Um, And then there are myths that tell us what's important, how to live our lives And the general feeling of that latter kind of myth is that it's a good myth if it works. If it tells people what's important and that produces the greater good, then it's a good myth. 
Um, when you're talking about assumptions that don't work anymore, I think it's also really important to bear in mind this quote that you have in your book, uh, The Baby Matrix. At a time when we humans are consuming resources over 50% faster than the planet is producing them, every choice to bear a child has implications for the larger community. That's why this conversation involves all of us, parents or not. And one of the assumptions that people are going on often when they aren't thinking about whether or not they should have kids, but they're just proceeding along with these social myths is that they think that the world is going to be the same as it has been. And we're certainly finding out the hard way that that is not the case. Climate's going to bite us in the ass. All kinds of things, you know, as you talk about in Manswarm, are are going to reach critical points. Linus- I, I agree. I, yeah, I agree. I think that um, it's, it's a little bit of pulling the wool over the eyes even in terms of they don't, a lot of people don't think into the future on, on how their children are actually going to experience that future. Um, yeah. So somehow they, they just blindly believe that the, their children will survive and be fine. And I'm with you, the longer we go without really tackling climate change, you know, the, the option to create, you know, to reproduce, just uh, you're, you're, you're inviting your offspring to um, have hardship and struggle, which, you know, I just, to me, I just don't really understand why. But yeah. I guess I do understand if I roll it back to <laughs> some assumptions I talk about in the baby matrix where people so, in, so strongly believe that they're supposed to reproduce and it's normal and if you don't, you're not normal. And so seeing past, if once people can see past that those are just beliefs that were put on us so long ago when societies wanted to increase their population so they could have more power. And like you were saying, they were told these productive, I suppose, myths at the time because it created more humans in a time when, you know, women died in childbirth. You right. know, pregnancy was a scary thing. You know, there wasn't medical technology. It's so still a scary thing. To, yeah, <laughs> for many women, right? It was really required to romanticize the whole thing so we get some more people going so we'd be more powerful. And all that made sense at the time, but today, clearly, we don't need to do that. But we're still acting and believing like we do. So that's yeah. that's one of the areas, too, where I just, oh, I get so fired at looking at these beliefs and go, why do people still continue to believe this when it's really... <laughs> not true. And also when you, you know, when people are looking at our social and economic structures, for example, there are Mm -hmm. people who, who may not agree with capitalism. And yet, that's one of the things driving pronatalism, as you explain here, and we'll get into that. Um, There are people who no longer cleave to the religious beliefs of their youth. And yet, you know, I was raised Catholic. So was I. Yeah. <laughs> they still, you know, people talk about Pope Francis and, oh, he's so environmental. He still says, and he said in his encyclical, that so-called environmental encyclical, he said a lot of great things in there, but he also said mm-hmm. that, you know, there's no reason why we can't continue to populate. It's just a matter of consumption. And that's bullshit. Yeah. And so now I'm going to take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> I understand how the, 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 you just get fired on some of this stuff. I, I think, yeah, the Pope, he's, 
I totally agree with you. On one hand, I think he, he sees the environmental problems, but he's still clinging to old pronatalism because he wants that church to continue to grow and to continue to grow. It needs more parishioners. Right. <laughs> Right. So he can't he can't get into overpopulation as a crisis. It would it would not be good for the Catholic business. Right. <laughs> if it were. Let's go through the seven assumptions, because I think we, we need to lay these things out. The first one is we have a biological instinct to have children. Uh, well, I never wanted to. And I know other people who didn't want to. And who come from different backgrounds than, than I do. They're all different kinds of people from different backgrounds who never wanted to have children. So, so what, what's the real, the real deal with this biological instinct idea? Well, it supports the pronatalist you know, theory that um, to encourage reproduction. And in order to do that, we need to believe that we're wired to want kids. It's what we're supposed to want to do. And when you really unravel it, there's no real evidence to support that notion, you know, that there's a, that there's, that we're wired to want them. Now, I love the words of, uh, see if I can quote them from Ellen Peck, you know, she did a great book of the first book on pronatalism back in the seventies. And uh, I, what I tried to do with the baby matrix is take it to essentially do a second edition and, and push some of this thinking further. But she said, something to the effect that conception is biological, pregnancy is biological, birth is biological, parenthood is psychological in its application. So it's just because we humans have the biological ability to conceive, bear children, doesn't mean we have an instinctive desire, you know, to become parents or even the ability to be parents, which we're pushed that notion too, that just because we can biologically create a child and have a child that somehow it's going to kick in. We're we're going to know what to do. (laughs) Clearly that's not true because we see so many unfit parents out there, you know, a lot of kids with a lot of problems who are, have bad parenting. So, so I unravel that um, in, in uh, the, the book and I call it the destiny assumption. So that's the pronatalist belief. We've been, you know, hammered to think we're supposed to want them when really um, the, the more realistic assumption or that it reflects the truth is that our, I believe our biological capacities um, are what really allow us to make parenthood a choice. We are, we have a, a biological makeup where our cognitive abilities can help us decide whether this is something that we want is best, et cetera. So that's the more realistic thinking that I think if more people thought that way, mm-hmm. uh, they would make better decisions for themselves and the world about parenthood. Well, and you know, the, one of the real stickers to this assumption is that even if, especially if you're female, even if you don't feel any, any instinctual drive to have children, at least when you're younger, you're constantly being told that that's going to change you know, and and you'll feel differently when it's your own. Well, there are plenty of people who have their own kids and wind up, you know, stuffing them into garbage chutes, you know, so it does, when when you look around you, it doesn't really bear out. And yet you're constantly told, no, what you know about yourself is not necessarily true. And, and I think that's, that's a bad thing to do to someone's sense of intuition and, and inner knowing. 
Uh, yes, I agree that it's very much pushed that uh, somehow, you know, society knows what you're going to think and feel about motherhood, you know, as you get older. And yeah. um, that, too, is very pronatalist in, in agenda. To go to the next assumption that I discussed, I call it the normality assumption, mm-hmm. that the pronatalist view is that there's some, this is a big one. If there's something wrong with you if you don't want them. So that would be, you know, we grow up and we, we continue to don't have that urge that we're supposed to have. And we start looking at ourselves and saying, well, why don't I and other people do? What's wrong with me? You know, and society's telling me I should. So what's up with that? So it's, it's just the, the whole idea of that wanting, supposed to want, wanting a child is like a sign of our psychological health that means we're mature, you know, it's, it's what's normal. I think we're not selfish. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Or that, you know, for, for <laughs> women, you know, uh, somehow if we don't want to become a mother, we're not a woman. That's a huge one that a lot yeah. of women wrestle with that. And it's just, it's, it's all myth. But again, it points back to the, the, the agenda is to have us, believe so deeply, embeddedly, that we're supposed to want them. And if we don't, then, you know, you better get about changing your mind about that. Otherwise, you're going to feel badly about yourself. So it's just, it's a real mind twister that's very unhealthy that um, I think a lot of women in particular got to got to work, work through it. If you, you don't feel like you want to have kids, you've got to this is why I think the the baby matrix is such a good tool because it helps you take some blinders off and go, wait a minute, there isn't anything wrong with me. It's just society trying to blow this down my you know throat that there is. So yeah, really have people see more clearly what's what's so. Yeah, and the and the selfish thing. I mean, I literally remember hearing my parents talk about a younger couple they knew that had recently gotten married and they were very active and and they were saying well when are they going to have kids well I don't know well that's so selfish yes very very powerful messaging yeah and you make such a a wonderful case in the baby matrix about turning that on its head how so many people have kids for selfish reasons the kid, him or herself, is not asking to be born, but the people, the, the the parents assign all kinds of values that they want this kid to have and characteristics they want this kid to have. If there's anything selfish, a lot of the people who have kids are doing it for selfish reasons. And that's what's not talked about as much. Somehow, by we're told that just by the very act that we have reproduced, we've somehow become selfless. Right. <laughs> when often parenting does, as we know, does not look that way. Um, and a lot of people, I think, have kids because they, they is, a, is a way to heal their past. So they put yeah. a lot on their kids, you know, on them to this is what you're going to you're going to fulfill some dreams I didn't get. And you need to, you know, help me heal my past. I mean, it's not said overtly, but you know, those are some of the dynamics that go on. So, um, yeah, parenting, can, the, the way parents behave can be quite, be quite selfish. But yet, again, the pronatalist messaging is that it's selfish if you don't reproduce and add to the society. It's, it's you know, again, it's based on such an ancient model, but we continue to just blindly, many people continue to just blindly follow it and believe it and believe the selfish bull. 
So it's, it's so entrenched. Being selfish really is not connected to whether you have children or not. Doing something for yourself without, you know, thinking about others or without thinking about the consequences to other people, I mean, and that can happen whether you're a parent or not, you know, it's right. the truth. So. And also there's the greater good, you know. Too often people just think of their own nuclear family, which is in and of itself a relatively recent phenomenon. Right. If you have kids and you're driving them all over all the time, right. that's selfish when you consider the common good you know, of a clean environment or fossil fuel use or of the need for more roads or whatever. You know, there are all kinds of consumption implications that are involved if, if you reproduce. And again, there are people who have a child or adopt children or whatever who are wonderful parents and they're not selfish and we're not saying that it's a, an either-or situation. It's just we want people to feel free to make their own decisions without all this baggage. I've, I've known hundreds, thousands of families of two came out and couples and people who decide not to have children or not raise them. And they, they are involved, you know, in our communities, giving back to the world in so many ways that, you know, I could argue that they are, they are the bigger givers and, and one way and more of a global perspective. So, you know, the idea that they're sitting around eating bonbons or yeah, looking right. like a couple on Time magazine, you know, on the beach, the beautiful couple on the beach, that's not who they are. Right. <laughs> and there are personal realizations that you can have that would conflict with having children. I, for example, can't stand high squeaky noises. I just can't, I can't, I can't stand high squeaky noises. I can't stand, you know, like Pixar animated stuff with all those voices. I can't right. stand it. I mean, I would probably yeah. curl up in the fetal position if if I had to go to one of those. Are those <laughs> are those like, you know, totally important ideas? No, but it just goes to show you that I'm a happier person if I don't have to deal with that. Now, the purpose of marriage is to have children. That's assumption number three. Is that primarily a religious thing? Well, I think it can go back even farther, you know, where, you know, they had laws in the Augustan time. They penalized couples for not having kids. And so, yeah, the, I think probably after, you know, A.D., the church got involved and, you know, made it like you have to, the, the marriage is centered around procreation. Um, mm -hmm. So it goes back a long, long way. But, you know, I think I, as I argue in the book that that bond between marriage and procreation, it's really broken down over the course, I think, of really a lot of the 20th century and birth control had, has had a lot to do with it, you know, with mm -hmm. the advent of Margaret Sanger and birth control clinics and the pill, you know, the use of the pill for many couples, making it possible to actually truly be able to plan your family was huge, yeah. huge. And, and then and an outgrowth of that was, oh, my gosh, we don't maybe we don't even have to have them at all. Right. <laughs> so, you know, powerful. With gay marriage now finally oh, yeah. being accepted, there are gay couples who who would like to have children and who adopt children or whatever and or you know lesbian couples who might have a kid of their own but yeah the fact that you have marriages that don't carry as heavy a presumption about reproduction just kind of proves that point that marriage is not necessarily yeah. about reproduction 
an interesting thing I, I'm reading about too with the advent of um, same-sex marriage becoming legal and you know the progress we've made on that score that uh, in, in lesbian marriages in particular they are now starting to say that they get pressure to start having kids so oh, stop so pronatalist influence is now reaching them to say well now that you're married you have to have kids, right? You know, and God. so it, it's just really putting a head trip on them. They too get the mm-hmm. pressure that, that heterosexual couples get. So that's an example of pronatalism at work. It's just pervasive. It's just so, I think there's progress, but that some of that social pressure uh, is leaking its way into that, that area as well. Okay, this one, the, yeah. the next two really get me. I had a feeling we were going to go to these. <laughs> Uh, number four is everyone has the right to have children. And number five, and we'll deal with these separately, but they are combined. Everyone has the right to as many biological children as they want. Now, as far as everyone has the right to have children, I have had, I have had rescue dogs and currently do. And in order to adopt a dog, I had to present my tax form. I had to have personal recommendations, a vet recommendation, a home inspection. And I think that's a good thing because then, you know, the people who are the shelters or whatever who are placing the dog, they want to make sure that this this creature is going to be well cared for and and will have what what he or she needs. Um, But that's not required to reproduce. So when everyone nope, has it's not when everyone has the right <laughs> to have children, if that's a right, then then where does that get us? You know, in our country, our I think our constitution, I guess I you know, people would say it reinforces the idea that we have we are have the protections to life, liberty, happiness, etc. and in there that includes the right to marry, establish a home, bring up children, um so, you know, you can't argue that it's legally a right, which I do discuss in the book, but I also discuss the costs of it being everyone's right so that, you know, we pay heavy social, psychological, financial costs as a, as a result of believing that anyone should be able to have children whenever they want. I mean, we could sit here for hours and talk about, you know, just the unfit parents, abuse, neglect. The harm children go through when they, they're brought into the world by parents that aren't ready, um, it's just, it, it, it led me to, to, to then discuss, you know, what would be an alternative mindset that would be more productive. And I go into discussing parenthood. What would it look like if society treated it as a privileged mm-hmm. right? That it's not just something automatically we all get to do. I mean, we, we, we can, but what if we reinforced people for really knowing this is what they want and really being more ready. How could we provide that kind of service as a society? So I, I discussed some ideas on that before. And you talk about actually getting some kind of certification. I mean, if you're going to drive a car. Well, that's one, I, one idea. Yeah. Sure. Exactly. If we can drive a car, I think, to be able to uh, encourage, to be able to offer some kind of a program i call it a certification just as a way to formalize it that if you take this and it would be developed by a whole slew of interdisciplinary experts to help people decide number one do they want them 
And number two, where, where are they less ready and what do they really need to work mm-hmm. on before they're ready to have kids? If you, if you finish a program like that, I think you should get a tax break, you know, or make it the opposite. If you don't choose to take that sort of a step that the government offers you, then, you know, you don't get a certain tax benefit. So some kind of incentivization for people to just think a little harder before they just jump right into it based on this belief that um, we're all, we can all have them just, you know, when we're ready, when biologically we can. Treat it a little more seriously. You have a figure in the book that is mind-blowing. Now, this was in as of 2007, so that was before the economic crash and before the current Mm -hmm. opioid epidemic, neither of which was Mm, real good for parenting skills. Oh, my god! By 2000—or in 2007, annual costs of child abuse and neglect— were $103.8 billion annually in the United States. Um, And unbelievable. You know, I came from an abusive home because my father was a World War II Mm. veteran who was really screwed up during the war. We're pretty sure he was a sniper. Great guy when he was sober. Um, But but when he drank, mm. you know, he self-medicated and he became very violent. And, right. you know, I don't think that even cost anybody anything except for when we had to call the cops. So that doesn't even cover the the abuse no. and neglect that's not reported. Of course, reporting is better now. That also points to, you know, psychological impacts, you know, of the children, in, like in your situation, you know, it really... Uh, it's not the best thing for a child to be exposed to something like that. And, you know, some people would think, oh, well, it's because you had a rough childhood that you don't want to have kids. No, I mean, it's far more complex than that. And no. I know plenty of people who have oh, wonderful yeah. childhoods. You don't, got it. You know, there it, it's a full spectrum. That, too, is a myth, for sure. Okay, what about this one? Everyone has the right to as many biological children as they want. You know, do we have a right? Well, I think in... The pronatalist doctrine, I think the answer would be yes, but I discuss in the book that there are so many problems when you look at the reality of that mindset of believing that the the effects of it are so huge um, that it really calls for we have to think about it differently. But again, uh, you know, I think people are too entrenched in some of these other assumptions. Yeah. And then you have media adoration of women with clown car vaginas, mm-hmm. you know, like those Duggar right. people. And there was some other group. Right. They had, they had, I don't know how many children. And they said, well, they had a van for that would fit 12 so they could have two more or something. It's like, no, <laughs> no. Right. You know, it's one of the biggest bennies of keeping pronatalism going is it's big business. Yeah big business. They get shows, it's products, it's, it, it fuels consumption. So, it, you know, to try and halt that train, um, it's really, really hard. It fuels major, major bucks. And I've heard this argument many times. Well, maybe they'll help solve the problem. Yeah, okay, everybody's bearing the messiah, <laughs> all right? So, <laughs> right. and right. you have you have a, uh, a statistic here about climate change, you know, people who are concerned with climate change, from the University of Oregon, 
The carbon emissions impact of having one fewer child is almost 20 times greater than the impact of engaging in environmentally friendly practices like having an electric car or conserving energy or, you know, any of the other stuff that you might be doing. So 20 times greater than any of those just by having one fewer child. Yeah, that research really uh, knocked a lot of people's socks off. Uh, I think it's really powerful. One thing I I, I do see that I find optimistic is that younger generations that learn about this kind of these stats and these realities, I think they really get it. I really do. I think Mm -hmm. they and they they know they're going into their adulthood um, in a world that has some major challenges, you know, ahead from a climate perspective. And so I think, at least from what I like millennials and that I talk to and research I've read out there, I think the the attitudes towards kids and having fewer of them and why, uh, I think it's their, they're grasping it. It's really important to take a look at the bigger picture as part of your reproductive decision. So, um, I think they get the fact that it's a client, it's a, it's a carbon wake that they leave. They will begin leaving with every, every human they bring onto the planet. Right. Right. And I think people are, they're waiting longer to have kids, you know, for a variety of reasons. Financial certainly is one of them oftentimes, but for a lot of younger people, the longer they wait and get into their thirties, they start to realize, well, maybe do I, how, how badly do I really want them? And even to have the opportunity mm-hmm. and be in a social and cultural place to where they feel like they can think about it that way to me means we've made some progress yeah. because two or three generations ago, people didn't even, even begin to think like that. They were just like, you get married, you have kids. You didn't even question it. Right. So, you know, I think they, that it's a choice earlier in their lives and then that just opens up a road for them to make you know more educated decisions as they they get older so now having said that some of the research does suggest that one of the we've seen a little uptick in you know women uh in their 40s their early 40s having their first child so a lot of them are waiting and they wait a long time and then they start to have kids one or two maybe even three you know so they 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 engage in IVF and things like that to help them get pregnant so they end up having families just later Mm. so we're seeing a little bit of that as well here's the penultimate one the ultimate path to fulfillment in life is parenthood and you hear people say, oh, I never knew what love was until I had my own children. <laughs> or, oh, this was the greatest thing right. I ever did in my life. But, you know, a lot of people, they do expect great fulfillment in parenthood. It's one of those things, though, that once you've done it, you really can't take it back. The, the couples you interviewed for families of two, for example, did you think or did they think that, that they were any less fulfilled by not having become parents? Absolutely not. You know, they, to them, um, bringing children into the marriage, it was for many of them, that's something that um, they had great concerns about, that they were already happily married and everything was great. They were having a great life together and they thought about, well, if we brought a child into this, would it necessarily make you know, our lives together better? And a lot of them just didn't think so or weren't sure and they didn't want it badly enough to, to, to make that happen. So 
um, I just think this fulfillment thing goes way back again to the messaging that society was given centuries and centuries ago to promote reproductions and make it sexy, make like, God, you're going to have the best life possible when you have kids, you, you, you know, just to ro- that romanticizing what it's really going to be like. And in today's world, one thing I like seeing is that there, we just in the last year, even online, et cetera, I've seen more people coming out and more forums talking about regret and that they, they not only regret becoming parents, but what it really did to their marriage as a result, bringing kids onto the scene, what difficulties, you know, that they then challenges they were then faced with people are more beginning to be more um, real about what it really means to bring children into a marriage. And I think that is great because then people that are in the midst of trying to decide whether they want kids or not, they can, they can, you know, get the romanticized version. It's going to be the greatest fulfilling thing in life. And that can be true. And it is true for many people, but it isn't true for everyone. And I think people need to really be very conscious of, of that. That goes on too. But the fact that a lot of people, they, they're, they talk about regrets, but they don't really want their name to be on there or seen. There's still a level where people don't really want, you know, they, they'll say it, but they don't, they want to be uh, unnamed, as it were. Yeah. So we're still, we've got a lot of room to go. <laughs> well, you said also in the baby matrix that um, there is evidence that the more money parents spend on a child, the more positively they, they describe them, which I found very interesting. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm invested. Right. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, you're reinforcing your, your, the choices you've made. It's, you know, it's cognitive dissonance at work in a way. So you're reinforcing, you know, what, you, what you've done. It had to be the right, right. thing. And isn't that also one of the things that causes a a sharp reaction to someone saying, well, you know, having kids isn't for everyone, or I didn't have kids and I'm glad I didn't. A lot of people will react strongly to that. It can consciously or unconsciously tap into some feelings of parents, you know, that they they don't really want to acknowledge, like drive a piece of me that regrets it, to acknowledge that internally. It's a lot easier to make somebody else wrong about it than to acknowledge something you might find difficult to admit for yourself. Then the final one is, my children will be there for me when I'm old. That's not necessarily true, is it? No, and I do discuss that, that, uh, you know, are, are adult children really mostly there for their adult parents? And, you know, the answer is some, it is yes, but the answer is also no. And in just today's society, too, where we don't, we live all over the place, we're not necessarily living close to our parents. Um, A lot, a lot of people cannot provide financially for their parents. That's what's needed. Um, They can't help with, you know, putting them into certain kind of housing or so there's just a lot of problems to really confront the realities that, 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 you know, make you go right up against that. It's not necessarily the case. And is it really, you got to ask yourself, is it wise to bank on that? If you're using that as a reason to have a kid. And so I, you know, discuss why it really isn't wise to bank on it. And I also go into, is it another question to ask is, is it really fair to expect your kid Mm -hmm. to do that? And that too is, you know, pushing in what modern society is more like today as opposed to in generations past, you know, when 
settling land in the United States and, you know, families had to be big to work the land and, you know, just they, they were all living close together and more apt to be there when their right. parents were getting older. And it just, it's really doesn't really look like that anymore. I read something recently, I think it was in the New York Times, it was about a group of women in a city. They were, you know, professional women. Some were single, some were divorced. Uh, they were in their 40s, and they were planning that they would share a house, and they were going to start now while they were still able-bodied and, you know, see what worked. And, you know, a mm -hmm. lot of people wrote in comments and saying, yeah, well, good luck with that. You'll be tearing each other's hair out. But at least it's an attempt. They didn't have kids either by choice or because it just didn't work out that way. And so they were looking to create something else to satisfy their, their anticipated needs. Well, I would argue that that's exactly some kind of an option that parents should think of so that they're not, you know, set in this expecting their kids to somehow be there or help them create, you know, the situation that they, they, they're going to need when they're old. All of us, I think, have the responsibility to look to the future of when we're older in our elder years and how do we want life to look and not to just bank on our kids helping us. It's just so I, I applaud um, things like that. And I've seen just some new residential communities, new kinds of developments mm -hmm. that are neo-assisted living, you know, that are, they're like the assisted living that my parents would be in, but they're for baby boomers, for example. And so there, there are a lot of people out there thinking about uh, how do we want to live when we're older? How do we create that environment, that support system? And what does that support system really look like? It behooves all of us, whether we have children or not, to um, to just take responsibility mm -hmm. and don't wait. You know, I talked to a lot of younger people. I said, start thinking about it now, as in put money in your 401k, you know, do some very practical things about making sure you're going to have enough money and who's going to be your support. And, you know, it's never too too early to start thinking about future like that. Well, and also there's no guarantee that you and your children will like each other. <laughs> there's plenty of estrangement. Exactly. You know, I know for myself that I'm in my 50s and I really make a concerted effort. I have a very strong support network mm -hmm. of people that are my age and they're also some are younger than me. <laughs> so I make a concerted effort to make sure that, that the span of my support structure is, um, it's not just people my age, it's people that I know are going to be younger than I am um, and may be, there, be able to be there for me in ways that I might need some assistance. Mm -hmm. And I play that role right now with a, a dear friend of mine who's 81 years old and I'm her executor and you know, I do, I do for her. And in her eyes, you know, I'm, I'm young and I got, I got time. And so she's, she was smart. You know, she too uh, has been a real model for me on how to, when you're single, she doesn't have kids either. Mm -hmm. And um, how did she navigate having a strong support structure when she's 81 years old? Knowing what you know about the pressures to have children and the fact that you didn't want children. When when did you know that yourself? Well, I think I knew pretty early in my my life. I think I'm one of those kids where I was as soon as I could start to make my own money, I wanted to make my own money, so I babysat, you know, before mm -hmm. I was sixteen. I have a younger brother, so I did my share of babysitting with him and then I 
did it for money. And uh, I knew pretty quickly that the, the whole day-to-day raising of children did not mm-hmm. appeal to me. And I thought, God, when I grow up, do I want my day-to-day life to, to, to be, have this be the central thing? And the answer was a clear no. And um, it never really changed, you know. But now, I'm, now I get to be kind of a, the wacky godmother and aunt. And, you know, I have five godkids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so... I, I have children and, and now adult children in my life, but um, and I, I enjoy that a lot. But I, the, the act of having the, the act of raising them, have that be the central focus of my adult life, never, never appealed to me. And I never really changed my mind about that. Did you ever have to make any kind of sacrifice, say, if you were in a relationship with someone and it became clear that each of you had different perspectives on having children? Well, when I met my husband, you know, he, who became my husband, um, he was really quite neutral about the whole thing. He didn't have a big desire to have children himself, I think in part because before he met me, he experienced um, women wanting to date him, but he, and it was because they, they felt that their quote biological clock was ticking, which uh, sidebar, that's a myth. But, you know, they met him and went, okay, he's a professional, he's good father material, I'm going after that guy. So he felt a little bit like, well, do they really love me or do they really just want me so they can have a kid? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and then here I was, I didn't want them. And he, I think, was just sort of, it was refreshing. He was relieved. Now, having said that, he didn't get a vasectomy right away after we got married either. He, we, he decided he wanted to keep the door open because he didn't want us be the one to make it difficult if I did change my mind. Mm-hmm. So we had that discussion a lot of, I'm not going to change my mind. And by the time I was 35, he finally believed me. <laughs> 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 so really before him, I didn't have to make any sacrifices. As I, uh, as I look back, I never really got that seriously involved with anyone where I would really have approached that, that topic. I was in graduate school. I was, you know, busy doing yeah. And did you have any uh, pressures from your family? You know, I really didn't. Um, I will say, though, that when I decided to do Families of Two, my mom, when I told my mother I, that's what I was doing, her first response was, well, I, I can't tell anybody about your, your book project. <laughs> I was like, what? Well, what do you mean? Like, why is that? And so, but it led to a conversation between us that I think needed to be had where she wondered, did she do something wrong in raising me such that I grew up not wanting to do what she did, which was to have kids. And I said, you know, essentially, mom, you, you did everything right. As in, they raised us to, to believe we can grow up and create the mm-hmm. life we want. And as long as we're happy and, you know, we're happy in life, that's what really matters. And so she did, I think, you know, harbor some things that uh, made her feel badly about it. But once we talked about it, oh, it made us closer in ways that, you know, we hadn't been before. And um, it just was a great opener to feel, you know, even closer. That's very interesting. Yeah, I didn't get pressure, maybe, and no pressure from my friends, really. And my friends are generally even once, most of them, you know, that I've known for many years, they at least have had one child and very cool, no, no, 
pressure. I do sometimes wonder, honestly, about my husband's family. I think they really would have liked my husband to, you know, have a son and do that mm-hmm. whole traditional thing. But they're long over it. They're long over it now. We've been married 30 years. <laughs> wow. So they're not over it now. Uh, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so. well, you get a prize for that. 30 years, man. <laughs> I know. The, I copied down this Linus Pauling quote. Mm about fulfillment and it's it's satisfying one's curiosity Mm. is one of the great fulfillments of life there are there are so many different ways to live one's life and i think your book really takes people to realizing the choices that they do have and and to look at the pressures that might be brought to bear on them and to to realize that they're not based on anything really right it's 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 their their the word is belief and i underscore you know the word belief so i really wanted the baby matrix to be a a a piece that once you read it you would be able to see past what you've been influenced to think believe is truth and really be able to think really for yourself you know get all that that junk out of out of the you know the influence um, is to the side as much as possible, and um, when people can do that, I think if there's a certain freedom that comes with that, that to create their own road, carve their own path, and not feel badly about that. I think that's the the main thing is is to, to not believe that there's something wrong because you're not you know doing the path the way society tells you to do it, and you know these are beliefs that. They go back a long way. They had utility, but um, this is a, a case where we need to rethink what we think it works uh, in today's world. And as you're, uh, I know you're, mm-hmm. you're passionate about by rethinking a lot of these myths. I believe that if attitudes and beliefs can shift, and then that is the that's what will be uh, that's what will lead to right action. And in terms of population, mm-hmm. it that people feel more okay with you know what, we only want one, and it's really cool to only have one. And even more, it's just fine if we decide not to have any at all. So the more people we can you know that can society can accept that. And I think that it, it just is going to reap benefits to bring fewer humans. And, you know, as we know, that that, that is a, it's a big, big, big need is you just have to get population, you know, more stabilized. And I think it starts with how we think we're supposed to live and be and what's, what we think is supposed to make us happy. We need to see, we need to see further beyond just what we're spoon-fed. That was my, mis- that was my mission. Well, I would say <laughs> mission accomplished. Oh, you're... You're sweet. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, it's really it's a terrific book. And and Manswarm, Thank which you. you edited, is is a terrific book for people who really want to look at the um the environmental nuts and bolts. It's really basic. And it's important to bear in mind that we are one species of many millions of species who all rely on the same biotic networks and the same water and the same air and the same food. Yes. I, I, when I read the first, first edition, it, it really just quickly, just, it inspired me to want to do a second edition to get it down to its nuggets so that an eighth grader could understand Mm -hmm. the importance of all the other, we are one being amidst all the other beings. And um, we, I think we succeeded. We got it into a lot of college classrooms, undergraduate classrooms, right. beyond 
eighth grade, obviously, but um, I think younger people, they, the sooner they get that information, the better. And um, hopefully we contribute to that in a, in a small way. And I will have links to these books uh, uh, in the show notes. Oh, so great. people who are Thank listening you. and you want to, you know, you want to read it for yourself. I highly recommend these books. They're, um, they're intelligent. They're points, very well made. And do you have any uh, book projects coming up? Well, I'm working on the second edition of Families of Two uh, as we speak. I just started that and I'm taking it, um, I'm still focusing it on people that are coupled in romantic partnerships that have made the choice not to reproduce, um, but taking it more to a global scale and looking how what that experience is socially and culturally in different countries around the yeah. world today. Um, you know, what's it like to make that choice in Iceland or versus Brazil? Right. And who are they? And yes, yeah, so I'm um, excited about that. And it's, it's time The families of two, the first edition, is, you know, it came out in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And it's time to expand it and um, take it to a larger, you know, global look. Well, so I'm excited about that. That's what's on the agenda. Well, let's let's talk about that when it comes out because that sounds fascinating. Good for you for taking that on, Laura. I thank you so much for making these ideas so clear and and so available. I think you've really done a a service to everybody. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for the invitation today. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, my pleasure. Enjoyed talking with it's you. It's great talking with you, Laura. Thank you so much. Thanks to Laura Carroll, and thank you for listening. You can find links to Laura's books on the show notes at www.thebigchewpodcast.com. You can also leave a comment there. We have one more episode coming up in this three-part population series, and it's about a population issue that doesn't usually get talked about. Stay tuned and subscribe to The Big Chew Podcast at thebigchewpodcast.com. Bye for now.